I'm Steve Coleman, member of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel. What you have in your hand is a, something tentatively titled a listening sheet. Julie's used something like this before. Um, it's to, supposed to help you listen and interact with the message. There are blanks in the notes for you to fill in. Where I'm able to, I've put those answers in the PowerPoint slides and the fill-in words are in lime green. I don't like the color, so I won't use it anywhere else in my slides. There's also a response section at the bottom, you might notice, that has uh, three short questions. What we're going to do is something a little different than usual. We're going to take a few minutes at the end of the service to allow you to fill those questions in prayerfully and, 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 or do some praying. This is something new. We're trying to help you get the most out of your morning here. Julie and I have talked about something like this for a good while. Um, we may be on the teaching team, but we spend the majority of our Sundays out there in chairs uh, listening to other people speak. And uh, it's, it's been a challenge that we've thought about and taken on here. So we're giving this a try. Let us know what you think of it. Okay, good. So if, this is the first fill-in at the top. Uh, and they'll look like this. Because we are complete in Christ, we can do the impossible. It's under the central idea on your paper. Impossible. Uh, books and movies are filled with dramatic, impossible-looking situations. One television show, MacGyver, had the pro- pro- protagonist facing overwhelming odds with no hope of escape and no resources to speak of. Well, perhaps a bit of used gum, a paper clip, and a Swiss Army knife. And you know the rest. Time and time again, our hero would do the extraordinary. But we are not heroes. We have to live in an all-too-real world where the difficult can often end up being impossible for us. When Jesus came, he brought hope. He brought reconciliation with God. He brought new life. He also described the results of this new life. You do not have to read far into the Gospels to discover the impact of the change. Jesus said things like, when someone hits you on one cheek, just turn the other side of your face toward them. In other words, don't retaliate. And this, if someone forces you to walk one mile, and the Roman occupying army in the first century had that right to force any of the inhabitants to carry their stuff, but for only one mile. But Jesus said, if someone forces you to walk that one mile, go with them two miles. These reactions should jolt us. They defy reason. We can understand doing our duty for the one mile and maybe letting a sucker punch slide, but not beyond that. Going beyond seems impossible and would take a truly extraordinary person to do it. What this Bible tells us to do often defies our common sense, and it doesn't seem logical. In today's passage, in Colossians, we're going to be reminded about the impossibility of the calling we receive, and that because we are complete in Christ, we can do the impossible. We're coming into the home stretch in our Colossians series, and and. For you visitors, this is pulling together a lot, of Colo- uh, a lot of the book of Colossians. Paul had one goal, one plan in writing this book. 
It also very specifically draws from the section that, that the way we split it up has been, been uh, taught the last two weeks. But we'll do our best to keep you up to date on that. So we're reading in Colossians, verses 18 through 4.1. If you have your Bibles, turn with me there. Let's pray first. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's, It's inexhaustible. You describe it as living and powerful. And I know the more I read and study it, the more audacious some of the things seem. The, uh, the more challenging they are as I think about my life and, and how, what I'm doing in my worship to you and my love for you and in my service for you. Help us to get a vision of what you want for us this morning. In your name, amen. Okay, Colossians three eighteen through chapter 4, verse 1. Wives, submit yourselves to your husband as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Father, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be paid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Master, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. As with any text, it's going to be important to understand the context. And there's really two kinds of contexts we're going to be looking at here. First of all, the context of the book of Colossians. In the letter to the church at Colossae, Paul presents Christ very early in the book, in chapter 1, and describes him with terms like the image of the invisible God and all the fullness of God dwells in him. And he reconciled you in order to present you holy and without blemish. In chapter 2, he goes on and, and tells us that we walk in Christ by faith. He then provides arguments in response to the erroneous teaching that was going on in the church. Don't be taken captive through philosophy and empty deception. And he says, you are free from human rules and measures. You know, they were being given the traditions of men, or, gee, this is what I saw in a vision, now you've got to fulfill it. And Paul's saying, look, you don't have to fulfill anything to be in Christ. You don't have to, have to follow these disciplines in order to um, have a relationship with God. You are complete in Christ. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, the section just before our verses today. He starts talking about the practical side of this new life and the new freedom that we received in Christ. He says, first of all, set your minds on things above. Then he talks about a put-off, put-on process, very similar to, to what he says in the book of Ephesians. 
By the way, the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians seem to have been sent by Paul uh, at the same time carried by Tychicus, uh, as well as the book of Philemon. And there's a, a good bit of borrowing between the books you might remember put off and put on from there. But he does it here in Colossians too. And he says, uh, after setting your mind on things above, therefore, consider yourself to be dead to these things, and therefore, put on. So these are the logical um, steps for us to take based on the truths that he's been talking about. So his list starts like this. Put off sexual immorality, impurity, lust, greed, anger, strong vengeful indignation, a desire to cause distress, abusive speech. And he says, therefore, because you are new, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, love, bear with each other and forgive as the Lord forgave you, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, thankfulness, let the message of Christ dwell among you, and do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the context. And so right after this, we have our verse, wives, submit to your husbands. Has Paul decided to take a break from the truths of being complete in Christ and and this process of putting off and putting on and a change in character? I don't think so. Paul doesn't tend to do that, particularly in a short letter like this. He's aimed for one goal and one goal alone, demonstrating to us what being uh, centered and complete in Christ means. The list of individual behaviors that he's just talked about that we should push out of our lives and those that we should embrace are now joined by examples of how all this comes together and how this change shows up in relationships. Paul's providing a picture of what this teaching means practically if, if the saints at Colossae would grab hold of it. That is, their relationships would look radically different if they lived out the truth of their completeness in Christ. In Colossians, the examples of relationships show us what it looks like to live out the truth of our completeness in Christ. Let me say that again. In Colossians, the example of relationships show us what it looks like to live out the truth of our completeness in Christ. Let me explain. They tell us that if we see our steering wheel, the steering wheel in our car is crooked when we're driving straight, then we know something's not lined up correctly and you need to go get an alignment. In the same way, if you and I see that we're not matching up to the description of our responsibility in these relationships, we know there is work to be done. And we need to go back to the section before and work some more on putting off and putting on. Build those bits of character so that we can operate. We have the character to operate in these relationships. Well, there's a second kind of examination that we have to do to understand the teaching on relationships. And that is compare parallel passages. You know, there are two places where these examples are repeated. One in Paul's letter to 
Ephesus. So he sent this same teaching as the set of examples to illustrate the truths he was talking about in each letter, and then also one in Peter's first letter. Here's an abbreviated chart that shows the relationships mentioned in each book. Remarkable similarities. Both books present these within a practical discussion about being like Christ and the attitudes that are involved in that and what our responsibilities are in those relationships. It reinforces that these examples are designed to help us understand what God desires from us in day-to-day relationships. As I've said, they're examples of behavior. Paul could have also talked about a teacher-student relationship, brother-and-sister relationship, or supervisor and paid employee relationship. But he doesn't need to, because these relationships are close relationships, like some other examples he might have used. But what he's highlighting are the attitudes that go with the actions in these relationships. Let me try to explore that for you. You know, most of us immediately see the differences in the roles that are mentioned here. And I want to challenge you, first of all, to see the similarities in attitudes. What is common in these relationships? You look at the first one, wives and husbands. Wives are to submit. The word used is is a Greek military term that meant arranging troop divisions in a military fashion under a command. This arranging under or arraying is really what the word means, has this military uh, use. So whether Paul's picking up again on a, a metaphor or not, which he loves to do, Uh, I'm not sure, but in non-military use in the Scripture and elsewhere, it's used to communicate a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. In this particular uh, non-military context, the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament by Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, informally known as BDAG, gives it the meaning of Voluntarily yielding to love. Yielding in love. Sorry. So looking at the husband's part. Husband is to love. The understanding of this is enhanced by the list in Ephesians because Paul goes on there and describes this role that the husband, the kind of person this husband should be. And he talks about the husband should love just as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her. Let me just mention again, the Bible keeps telling us to do these impossible things. But this pairing of the verbs, to love and to submit, is interesting because the Bible in numerous places tells wives to love their husbands and tells us to love one another. It even says this is one of the ways people can know we are followers of Christ male and female, that we love each other. And you know, the word submit is no less interesting. Wives are not the only people to receive this command. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 16 about the household of Stephanus. He said they were the first converts in Acacia, and they they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people, 
and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. In 1 Peter, we find the same word, submit. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you should be submissive to one another and be clothed in humility. And then sort of the uh, topping for the cake, Ephesians 5.21 says, Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Well, how are these commands to submit to others in the church different from wives submitting to husbands? Okay, we just opened a huge hole that would take five weekend retreats to sort of work our way through. We can't do that today. But, what, but notice this one fact. What follows Ephesians 21 in your Bibles is verse 22. Astounding, I know. But that verse is the one in Ephesians that talks about wives submitting to husbands. And if you look your vibe, in your Bible, that verb, submit or subject, whichever it is, should be in italics. Why is that? Because it doesn't appear in the Greek manuscript. What is in the Greek is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, semicolon, wives to your own husbands, as to the Lord. You know, Bill, our treasurer, has two sons, Will and Cameron. Don't worry, you don't have to participate. I'm just using you. So he calls, let's say he calls Will and Cameron one day. He says, Will, I need you to mow the the lawn and trim the bushes in the front yard. And Cameron, the backyard. Well, even though Cameron was not issued a verb not given any details, he would have known what his father wanted. In the same way, Cameron was to mow the backyard and trim the bushes. And that's the identical situation here in Ephesians 5. We're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and wives to their husbands. So whatever submit means... We're commanded to do it to each other. Whatever love looks like, or intended to look like, we're called to do it for each other. So one common denominator between these is that in their essence, they require us to put the needs of the other person in front of our own. Dalton, you still willing to come up? Yeah, come up here. See if I can get you a chair. I'd ask several children before I found brave Dalton, willing to come up here. Because he doesn't know he's going to be tortured here for a minute. I'm just kidding you. No torture. You just have to sit there. Can you do that? Good. There's Dalton. How old are you, Dalton? I told you you wouldn't have to say anything, but I decided to throw that in. You're seven. Good. Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another out of fear of Christ. The Bible's telling me I need to submit to Dalton. That's a lot of power. I think it's best understood, at least initially. There's a lot, there's always a lot to Scripture. And you open cans of worms and there's, there's, you can just keep studying. And st- I have, you know, stacks of 
research and studies before I put together a message. And 90% of it, I just don't say. But um, in any event, one of the things Paul is getting at, the Lord wants of us, is to put our needs in front of everybody else in the body of Christ. Now that makes sense. And again, impossible. How am I expected to do that? Thanks, Dalton. You can go sit down again. Give him a hand, please. He did a nice job of being submitted to. So both loving and submitting are attitudes and actions we must do for each other. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's for your sheet. Well, I'm not going to go any further on things involved in a godly husband and wife relationship. To talk about the differences is to get into all that the Bible says about the relationship outside of these verses. There's some questions and controversies around them, and it's a whole subject in itself. You're welcome to come to the marriage class that Julie and I are probably going to offer next year. And we will definitely get more into all the verses connected with the husband-wife relationship. It's time now to turn our focus on the children and parents. Glad to have you children with us. Do you notice? Let me talk about your parents first. You listening? Okay. Do you notice that fathers are not to provoke or exasperate their children, but raise them in the care, training, and warning of the Lord. They have a difficult job to do. It's a big responsibility. And they're not perfect, but they're trying to do a good job because the Bible asks them to do that. They want to please Jesus with what they do. And he tells them here to do that job well. Do you see what children are supposed to do? Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. You need to obey. But on a very serious note at first, let me say, if your parents or other relatives are asking you to do something you shouldn't do, you should come to one of the elders. Uh, Particularly Rick, me, and Dr. Bill. We're the elders who have grown children. But feel free to come to us. We will listen to you. Okay, back to our regular, regularly scheduled program. As long as your parents are asking you to do things that are right, not wrong to do, you have a job also. Just like the parents, your job is difficult to do. Jesus asks you to do the job of obeying your parents for him. And you're supposed to do that job well, not because your parents are smarter than you, which they are, or because they are bigger than you, which they are, or because you cannot feed yourself and you would starve to death, which you might, but because it is what Jesus is asking you to do. That's the motivation. That's the purpose. You have a relationship with God as well if you've asked him into your life. But let me tell you now about one advantage of obeying parents is that you can avoid being an incomplete adult. I have to tell you about a monument. The National Monument of Scotland, it was called. On Carl 
Carlton Hill in Edinburgh, Scotland. It was started in 1826. And the plans were to model it after the Parthenon in Greece. Supposed to look something like this. It was to be a grand national memorial to Scottish soldiers and sailors who died fighting in the Napoleonic Wars. It was intended, according to the inscription, to be a memorial of the past, an incentive to the future heroism of the men of Scotland. Work stopped on it in 1829, six years later, and it was never finished. It was left incomplete because of lack of funds. And it remains on that hill looking like this. People now call it Edinburgh's Folly. I don't think it has ever inspired anyone to heroism. You know, I've seen a lot of young people turn into complete, wonderful adults. I've also seen many get into adulthood who, on the inside, seem incomplete. Like this memorial, lacking important parts of their character. Obeying parents, following their instruction and advice is a great way to make sure you grow the character traits you need to be to be a complete adult. So both obeying and parental training are big responsibilities that Jesus asks us to do. So back to the adults, although you can still listen in, there's good stuff here. Finally, masters and servants. It says, sincerity of heart the servants are supposed to operate in. The masters are to do what's right and fair. It says the servants are accountable. There's going to be uh, a reward for good, and there's going to be dealing with for poor performance. The The master has the same. These are well matched. Both are supposed to do something out of their heart. The servant's told, with all your heart, the master's told, do what is right. There's accountability. And both of them are told to do it as to the Lord. Again, back to attitude, back to motivation, back to purpose. It underscores the similarity, the attitude and the Christ focus. And you know, this one highlights more than the other two, but it's true for the other two relationships as well. It doesn't matter what the other person does, the way Paul, the way God's presenting it here. The responsibility is on our shoulders to do what is given to us as instructions, regardless of whether the other person changes or not, regardless of whether the other person does their role or not, regardless of whether or not the other person does a decent job with their role. And you know why that works? Because you are complete in Christ. He's given you everything you need to do that role independent of other people's reactions and support. Well, this is as far as we'll go with that. So in conclusion, this set of verses comes at the end of the put-off, put-on list and are examples of this truth and how it would apply to -to day-to-day life. What living out the truth of being centered and complete in Christ looks like in our relationships. It's not just a daunting task. It's an impossible one 
an example. I look at husbands love your wives. And I pray about it and I think about it and I say, you know, I'm being called to invest myself in my wife. To invest all of myself into loving her. My mission is to see that all of her needs are provided for. All of her needs are met without thought of what I want, even what I need. How can I, humanly speaking, do this? Impossible. Except for the truth that we are complete in Christ. You know, in this now very old film, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, he was going through these problems and things to, to get to this chalice so he could save his father who was dying out at the front of the cave and he got to a place oh I'm sorry your your paper both sincerity of heart and accountability are required for servants and masters so he came he came out and this big chasm faced him and the instructions he had these that they dug up archaeological instructions said you have to take a step of faith And so, after sweating for a few uh, half minutes on the screen, just to show that we've got a real problem here, and the dramatic music comes up, he sticks his foot out, if you remember, and he comes down hard and jolts on a stone bridge that looked just like the chasm, so he, he couldn't tell it was there. It was as good as invisible. The confidence that he had was in the instructions, that that's what you had to do. His motivator was his dad's dying. He had to get this accomplished. We're being asked to step forward, even if that step doesn't look as safe as we want it to. Hebrews talks about faith and says it's the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. God calls us to act on the truth. We are complete. And then the bridge will be there. He will take care of our needs. When the command seems impossible, God calls us to act on the truth of our completeness in Christ and trust him for the outcome. You know, uh, we were just singing in one of the hymns, All I need and trust is the deep, deep love of Jesus. Okay, what we're going to do here for three minutes or so, three, four minutes, I'm going to have Melanie come up and play, and what I'm going to do is let you look at those bottom three questions on the form, and uh, you can fill those in, you can pray, Silently, you can pray your way through those questions, but interact with our message today, and this is your response. Of course, you get to take the papers home. No grading. All right, thank you. What we're going to do is have the closing song, and then after that, the benediction.